Take your Bibles this morning once again and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 as we continue our study of the story of the prodigal son. We've got a few more weeks together in this very familiar story. It is continually amazing uh, to me the amount of work that has been done, the amount that has been written, the art that has been created all from this story. It is certainly without question one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible, but not only that, in all of ancient literature, this story seems to surpass them all. As I begin to really get in and study the depth of this text, uh, absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of things that have been said, the amount of ink that has been spilled to try to communicate something new and, and fresh. And so I guess because of all of that, that so much work has been done and so many sermons have been preached and so many books have been written and so many paintings have been painted, it would be quite difficult to change the title of the parable. The prodigal son. And it makes sense why that has been the title. It's, it's nowhere here. I mean, Jesus didn't give it that title. It It is written here at the top, but Jesus didn't write those little words there that divides this text up. But it makes makes a little bit of sense. Uh, This is one of three stories all about something that was lost. There's a lost sheep and a lost coin, and then there's a lost son. But in the midst of all the books that have been written, there was one that came out about 10 years ago by a Presbyterian pastor in New York City by the name of Timothy Keller. A phenomenal book that came as a bit of a surprise to people because he had attempted to change the title of the parable. It was in that book in which he tried to explain that this is really not not the story of the prodigal son. It is the story of the prodigal God. Because the word prodigal really doesn't mean wayward. It doesn't mean to be distant or to go away. The word prodigal means... A spendthrift. It means somebody who is lavish and excessive and extravagant in their actions and particularly extravagant in the way in which they spend. Now, if that is the definition, the son would certainly be one. He is extravagant. He's lavish. He's excessive. He takes a third of the family's inheritance and he wasted on reckless living. He certainly is a prodigal. What Keller tries to get us to understand is that maybe the most prodigal person in the story is not the son after all. Maybe the most prodigal person in the story is actually the father. Maybe the father is the most lavish and excessive and extravagant one. Maybe it should be called the prodigal father. But I think think there's a subtle reason why we like to call it the prodigal son. I think because in a very subtle way, we actually want the story to be about us. We want every story to be about us. We often try to find a way, just in normal conversation, to turn the story from someone else back to us. And certainly when we read the Bible, we like to look at every story in the Bible and make sure it's centered on us. The problem with that is, is that none of these stories are ultimately about us. 
Now, certainly they are about us, but at the center of every story, and the hero of every story is not us. It is God that is at the center of every story, and it is God that is the hero of every story. And it is only in understanding God as the center of the story that we will ever understand God as the center of our story. So it is that in our text this morning, as we continue to walk through the story, our focus begins to change a little bit, and we begin to see the Father and His extravagance. That's why the context for this story is actually so important for us. You know, it tells us in the first couple of verses, if you remember, that the whole reason this story was given is that there's religious leaders that were grumbling at, at Jesus. And the reason is, is because tax collectors and sinners... Not only just those who have done bad things, but just outsiders, those who didn't fit in with the church, those who didn't have any place to belong, they were drawn to Jesus. An amazing thought that those who had felt distant and outcast were drawn to something about Jesus. And as they came near, Jesus received them, it tells us, and he ate with them. The religious leaders could not understand who a man who claimed to be a prophet, no less who claimed to be God, would not understand who these people are. And then if he did understand who they are, would still eat with them and receive them. And hearing their grumbling, he tells three stories. It's really just one story because it tells us in verse 3, Jesus told this story. And then he tells three stories because essentially all three of these stories are the same. And the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son exists to do two primary things. To expose the heart of the religious leaders by exposing the real heart of God. You see, if Jesus in this story could give us a picture of God's heart, and we would then be able to see God's heart in light of the heart of the religious leaders, we would see that the religious leaders had actually missed the heart of God. They did not understand God at all. And the primary thing that it was clear they did not understand is that they did not understand the lavish, extravagant, excessive grace and love of God. And nothing reveals that to us more than this moment in the story when the Father welcomes the Son back It is a little part of the story that at the end you will see becomes the center of the story. And when we come to understand it correctly, what we will realize is this. Is when the father welcomes the son home, we get a picture of the father that radically liberates us by showing us how God's prodigal actions always overpower ours. God's prodigal actions always overpower ours. Let's look at it together and read the whole story, starting in verse 11. If you're there, in Luke 15, verse 11, say amen. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And here's our text for today. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, in those verses, there are the story of of two prodigals. There is a lavish and extravagant and an excessive son and a lavish and extravagant and excessive father. But we'll never understand the prodigal father without understanding the prodigal son. So just a reminder. When the son first made his request in verse 12, it was an absolutely staggering and self-centered and hurtful request. He went to his father and asked for the share of property that was coming to him. What he was saying to his father is this, Father, I don't love you. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. And I don't love the family, nor do I want to have anything to do with the family, because if he wanted that, he would have asked not just for property, but inheritance. The problem is inheritance comes with generational responsibility. He didn't want to just manage his part of the inheritance. He wanted his property which meant the father had to take a third of everything that had been gained by the family from generations past and sell it off, never to be able to get it back again, cash it in, and then give it to the son. So what the son was essentially doing was going out and taking a third of all of the generational wealth, that which we passed on to his children and those children and the next children. He took it all and he went to a far country. Now, the fact that he went to a far country means that he was trying to get as far away from his father as he could. He wanted nothing to do with his father, nothing to do with his family, nothing to do with the place he came from. He wanted to go to a distant country where no one else knew him. He wanted to start fresh. He, he wanted to do something new. He was leaving his religion. He was leaving everything. And he went to a far distant Gentile land where there in a matter of time, he took a third of the family's generational inheritance and squandered it in reckless living. And what's interesting to me is it's rather a predictable story, isn't it? I was just thinking this morning how everyone who ever does this thinks they're doing something fresh and unique. Right, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it to the man. I'm gonna cash in what I've got, and I'm gonna go live out here, and I'm gonna do this, and no one's gonna tell me what to do. And I don't think what they realize is they're doing what people have always been doing. Again, this is not a creative new thing to say. Well, forget you. I'm gonna take my stuff, and I'm gonna run. But what's sad is how predictable the story is. Somehow, the ending has not become as predictable, but it always is. If you choose to do what the prodigal did, which in some hope of finding real life and real freedom and real joy and then believing the lie that you'll never find that in a close relationship with God and you leave God and wander away in hopes to find all the other things that God himself promises, you will end up exactly like the prodigal did. That in attempting to find more life 
and joy and happiness, you will actually end up with greater emptiness, loneliness, and brokenness. It didn't work out for the prodigal because it just never does. It does tell us in verse 17 that he finally came to his senses. He woke up one day while eating with pigs and longing just to have some more of their food, and he had some realizations. He began to realize that life had not kind of come out the way that he thought it was going to. It never seems to do, but... This was even more difficult because he had all of these great visions and plans and here he is and all of those things have been lost. The, 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 the sin that promised him joy and life and freedom had led him to nothingness. And as he kind of wallows in the slop with the hogs, he starts remembering home and he comes to this incredible realization that is a really important one for us to remember and it is this. He begins to realize that being a servant in his father's house is better than being the master of our own. That's what everybody really wants. They, they want to be the master of their own home. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They want to break free. And all of a sudden he realizes, wait, my father's hired servants are at home eating much better and enjoying a much better life than I am here as the master of my own home. But he didn't just see it. He did something about it, as we talked about last week. Verse 20 is significant because it says he arose and he came to his father, meaning he began to see the truth about himself, that he was an unworthy sinner who had believed a lie and walked away from home. He began to see the truth about his father, which is it would have been better to stay in the father's house. And in response to that, he leaves his sin and returns to the father. I just feel like at the end of that little phrase right there, and he arose and came to his father, we still have no idea how the father is going to respond. It's already clear that the son's time away had broken him. He's empty, he's lonely, he's broken. You have to believe that the son's time away had also broken the father. And what do you do in a moment like this when your beloved son says, I don't love you, I don't want you, I believe there's something better, and you watch them as they leave, and you watch them as they destroy their life, and you wait day after day and month after month, and we don't know how long, maybe year after year, just waiting. I think the most reasonable response in a moment like that is to stew. To, to stew. It's in these moments in which Anger and resentment begins to creep in to our hearts and we just stew. Have, have any of you ever stewed? Someone hurt you? Someone betrayed you? Someone said something to you they shouldn't have said? They have not acted in the way you thought they should act? And so what do you do? Well, instead of saying something about it, you just stew. You just hold on to this kind of low, boiling anger and resentment. And every once in a while, at the right moment, it comes out. Often in imaginary conversations. Where you're alone in the car, or you're in the shower, and you start to begin to practice everything you're going to say the moment you have the opportunity to see that person. When they finally come back, when you finally make that call, you're going to let them have it. Because you've been practicing this speech. Many of us have this, sadly, in our marriage. 
Many of us have this with siblings. Many of us have this with children. Many of us have this with other church members or co-workers that when their name comes up or that situation comes up, you can feel the turning up of the gas in your heart and resentment and anger begins to boil. It's stewing. I think the reasonable thing to think about the father is that he's been home stewing. I mean, that's certainly what the son thought. You know, the son does practice a speech. He comes up with what he's going to say to the father. And by coming up with what he's going to say to the father, he shows us what he's thinking about what he's going to receive when he gets home. And what he wants to do is he wants to very quickly say everything that the father is going to say before the father gets a chance to say it. So instead of the father getting to use all his zingers, he'll say it first and kind of take all of the zingers out of what the father's going to do. So look what he says. He says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to say to my father that I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. I have sinned against heaven and before you, so treat me as one of your hired servants. And that little speech, which he came up with and certainly practiced every step of the way home, shows us what he thinks he's going to receive. You know, he never thought he'd be a son again. That's not in his mind. No, he thinks at at best he would be a servant. And he's already played this out. There's no way I'll ever be a son again. He knows that in some way he's always going to be estranged. Things will never be normal again. He knew he deserved nothing. He says over and over, I'm, I'm unworthy to be called your son. He knows that he'll never actually be highly valued. He's always going to live with just this little sense that I went too far and I'm not worthy to ever be back in the house again. His greatest hope, I mean, this is, as he imagines it out, his greatest hope is that he might be a servant, which means he would never live in the home. He would live in the servant's quarters. He would live on a property adjacent to the home, and he would receive some rights and some privileges in the servant's quarter, but he would always be a bit enslaved. There would still always be a sense into which he's not quite fully back. And he knows he's going to spend a third of his life or a half of his life or all of his life paying his father back. I mean, think about what he did. He A third of the family's inheritance is all gone. He's always going to be indebted. And so he is fully aware that as he goes back, things will never be normal. The father will not respond properly. He will be always estranged, unworthy, enslaved, and indebted. But even knowing all of that, he begins to make his way back home. He arose and came to his father. But you know what? He never actually thinks he's going back home. He's going back to his father's place, but he knows he's never going to be at home. He'll never be in the house. He's always going to be a slave. He would always be estranged and unworthy and indebted, and reasonably so. That's reasonable to believe. It's reasonable for us to believe. Everyone who had watched this play out in the community, which everyone would have, everyone seeing him come back, the reasonable response would be that he would maybe be taken as a servant, but things would never be the same again. And it's that assumption that makes the father's response so surprising. The father's response really can be defined in five words that are all in verse 20. 
If you mark in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle these five words. Saw, felt, ran, embraced, and kissed. Saw, felt, ran, embraced, and kissed. It says in verse 20 that he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off. Listen listen to this. It tells us that the son went to a far country, and then it says while the son was still far off. Do you know in the Greek, There are two different words that are used here that reveal to us that the distance the father went to find the son is further than the distance the son ever went to get away from the father. No, the son ran and he went as far as he could. But the word that is used here to refer to the father is that the father went to an unreachable place. Meaning that the father was not home stewing, the father was out searching. He was looking, but the only way it was possible for him to see him in that far of a distance is for the father to have been out of the house looking for the son. I don't know where we got in our idea that the father is simply stewing in his anger and resentment in a rocking chair on the front porch, just waiting for the son to come home. When the reality is to a farther distance than the son ever went, the father went to find him. He saw him. He says, and he, he felt for him. He felt compassion, this deep-rooted gut feeling that was in his heart. And the feeling he felt, surprisingly, was not a feeling of resentment or anger. It was a feel of love and longing that has been stirring in our heart for, for some time, that there was not this undercurrent of seething anger, but there was this undercurrent of ending love. The father had just been longing to see his son again and longing to welcome him He feels compassion for him. And then it says that that he ran to him. Now, it is here in which a little cultural understanding matters that it was in this moment that he loses all dignity and really breaks all the rules of oriental patriarchy. Meaning that for a man in this age and in this time to run is an absolute disgrace because to run makes it look like something in your house is not under control when someone else should be taking care of it. It's showing that you've missed something, that something has gone wrong. And even more shameful for that would be to a man who is going to wear a robe to pull his robe up to expose his legs and to run, which is exactly what he did. And the word Jesus uses here could have been multiple words, but he uses one to mean to run in a foot race. Meaning, the father sees his son at a far away distance, feels incredible love and longing for him, pulls up his robe, exposes his leg, and books it. He runs as fast as he possibly can, as if he's running in a race. And when he finally comes into the distance in which he can get his son, it says that he ran and embraced him. A word that actually means to place your face into the neck of someone else. He grabs him. He falls upon his neck. The father nestling his head into the son's neck, holding him as tightly as possible. And he begins to kiss him. That word can only mean one of two things. A passionate romantic kiss or a repetitive kiss. So the picture is this. He's out searching. He's longing for him. 
He can't wait to find him. And one day he sees him. And the moment he sees him, everything in his heart wells up, not with anger and resentment and an imaginary planned speech, but with love and compassion. He pulls up his robe. He begins to run as fast as he can. He grabs the son. He puts his arms around him. He puts his head inside of his neck and he kisses him and kisses him and kisses him and kisses him and kisses him. the son still has his speech ready. And as significant as this moment is, and as overwhelming and surprising that there is this massive embrace that will not let go, with the father's head buried in his neck, with kiss after kiss after kiss after kiss, the son has been practicing. And so he, he does it in verse 21. The son said to him, sensing just pushing him back a little bit, Father, listen, I, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't seem to finish. Because in verses 18 and 19, he had more to his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But before he gets to the end of his speech, the father interrupts him because the father doesn't have time for the son's speech. Strangely, the last thing the father is waiting on is to stand and listen as the son grovels. He's not waiting for the son to beg him to take him back. That is not on his mind. He has not been waiting for that moment. So as the son begins to give his speech, the father interrupts his speech, turns to his servant, and gives six commands. Look at him right there in verse 22. The father said to his servant, firstly, bring the quick, I mean, bring quickly the best robe. And go get a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. So you just imagine how the son looked as he, as he came back home. He has no money. Everything's been spent. His last job was feeding pigs and he makes the long walk home. And the first thing the father notices is he looks like a wreck. And so the first thing the father commands is this, servant, go get my best robe reserved for the best occasion and wrap it around him. And so it is, the servant comes and takes a robe and the young boy is completely wrapped up in the servant's robe, in the father's robe. Now get a ring, which is a signet ring, symbolizing that you are part of the family, symbolizing that all the inheritance and all the rights and everything that belongs to the father belongs to you and put it on his finger. Get a ring and, and put it on him. I don't want him to think of anything else but that he is fully and completely accepted. And go get some shoes because servants don't wear shoes. Sons wear shoes. And get the fatted calf. You know that, that one meal that mom only makes at Christmas? That it would be too extravagant to do on a normal Thursday. But it's just right for Christmas. And if you came home on a normal Thursday and that meal was there, you would say, what in the world is going on? This is, this is Christmas meal. That's what he's saying. Let's have that kind of meal. Go get the fattened calf reserved for the greatest moment. And we're going to eat. And we're going to celebrate. And we're going to have music. And we're going to dance. Why? Because of what he says in verse 22. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. This my son. The son never imagined he would be anything other than a servant, and the father was waiting at home simply to bring the son back in. And every single thing that was done to him was symbolizing the fact that he was fully and completely restored into the father's house with incredible emotion, incredible affection, and without him ever having to give a speech and grovel for his place. 
listen carefully. All of a sudden, in a moment, the focus of the story completely changes. Like we spent the last three weeks looking at the sun, the sun, the sun, the sun. And then all of a sudden, the sun is no longer the focus of the story. In this moment, the father begins to overshadow the sun. So all of a sudden, in one moment, this is not the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of the prodigal God. Why? Because what the father did for the son is more shocking than what the son did to the father. So the whole part of the story, we just can't believe what the son did. We're just shocked by his actions. Now, all of a sudden, what the father did makes the son's actions pale in comparison. All of a sudden, we realize, no, the father is much more extravagant than the son ever was. That in one moment, listen, in one moment, by coming to see the father as he really is, every single thing the son had done was overshadowed by the extravagance of the father. And that's always the way it is with God. You realize that what God has done for you is always more extravagant than anything you have done against Him. What God has done for you is more lavish than anything that you have ever done to Him. The way in which you have run for Him does not compare to the way in which He has run after you. Everything God does is so much greater than anything you have ever done. When you start to see the reality of the gospel, you no longer see what you've done. It's all overshadowed by what He has done. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what it says to us this morning. It reminds us, when you see the Father this way, that God's grace overshadows your sin and shame. Write that down. God's grace overshadows your sin and shame. Here is your sin and shame, which is great. God's grace is greater. So when you have a real picture of God's grace, like you really see it like it is, your sin and shame is not even seen anymore because it's all overshadowed by his extravagant grace. I mean, you have sinned. You have radically rejected God. Every time we sin, what we say is this, God, I don't want you. I believe there's something better than you. So I'm going to leave in hopes to find something better. We believe the lie of a better life. And then shame is that feeling we get when we finally come to ourselves and realize we were duped. We played the fool. And all of a sudden, the sin, the shame, the humiliation, the embarrassment, the regret makes us want to hide. Can you listen, listen to your pastor's heart here? People have asked me why I decided to spend seven weeks in the prodigal son. I've never done it before. I have never preached this before. There's a lot of reasons, but the primary reason is this. I'm convinced there's a lot of people around us that have come from this church that have been the prodigal, they've been extravagant, they've been excessive, they've been lavish, they've walked away in a very loud way, and they're not going to come back because they don't think that our grace and God's is big enough to cover what they've done. And we're not going to be that church. We're not going to sit on the rocking chair on the front porch and stew until they come back. We're going to go after them to remind them that the heart of our God is saying, listen, I know what you did was bad, but what God did was much greater. No, I see your lavish sin. It is not matched by God's lavish grace. Somehow, that spirit of the gospel must permeate from every one of our hearts. 
And it begins by letting go of our own resentment, our own anger, and saying, when I hold resentment and anger in my heart, what I'm saying is this, is what you did is bigger than what God can ever do for you. The prodigal son reminds us that on the cross, Jesus Christ took for us the sin, and he took for us the shame, that all of it might be covered, that he he took it and he paid for it, and he took the public humiliation on the cross. Like he pulled up his robe and he ran out and he was crucified so that his humiliation might be greater than ours. So that he didn't just take one sin, he took all of our sin. He got all of our sin and paid for it. He got all of our humiliation. So the sin that was placed upon him and the shame that he experienced was so much greater than any that we ever experienced. And God is not asking you to grovel in your sin. He's just asking you to bask in his grace. We're all prodigals. To every single prodigal that turns and makes his way back, he runs, he embraces, he holds, he kisses, and he celebrates. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His grace overshadows your sin and shame. Let me tell you one last one. His acceptance overshadows your insecurity. His acceptance overshadows your insecurity. Romans 8 talks about the fact that when we come to Christ through the Spirit of God, we have received a spirit of adoption which cries out, Abba, Father. So all of a sudden, when the Spirit of God comes into our life, uh, it reminds us that we're adopted. And we are adopted. We are brought into the family of God. So we've been prodigals. We've run away. God then brings us back in. He adopts us into the family. But what often happens, as Roman 8 says, is that the spirit of slavery and this kind of orphan spirit creeps back into our heart. And it kind of replays a message in our minds that we're not good enough and we don't belong and we're unaccepted and unloving and we're indebted. And God could never forgive me for that. And I just want you to hear right now, that's demonic. It's demonic. It's from the devil. It's not from God. It's demonic. But it constantly replays in our our minds. That's why Paul addresses it in Romans 8. He says, you've been adopted, but you're living like you've got a spirit of slavery, this orphan spirit. And every time that orphan spirit comes in, or every time you start to feel like you're not worthy enough or good enough to receive God, just remember this. God put a robe on your back, a ring on your finger, shoes on your feet. He killed the fatted calf, and he threw a party for you. Like, that's your reality. Like, you may feel like you've got nothing. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are clothed. You have been brought in. You are fully and completely his. He runs to you. He falls on you. He embraces you. He kisses you. The question is this, is, Is that the way you see God? Do you see God that way? Do you see God as this extravagant lover of people who has so much excessive grace that no one is beyond it? Do you see the Father saying to you, I know exactly what you did, but what I did was bigger and better. Here's what's on my heart this morning. If you feel estranged and unworthy and enslaved, if you feel indebted, if you are, listen, living with this low boiling guilt inside of your heart like you can never be good enough, you have missed the heart of God. 
God does not want you to wallow in your guilt. He does not want you to live your life moping with constant self-pity, with this constant feeling that you're not good enough. Because when you live that way, what it says is that you believe your stuff is better than what God has done for you. It diminishes the grace of God. It diminishes the glory of God. It diminishes the gospel of God. Because in the gospel, it says this. Yes, you're guilty, but you're free from the condemnation through Christ. So when you can get rid of that low-burning guilt and sense of unworthiness, God gets all the glory because he's bigger than that. Can I just just say this? God doesn't need your speeches. How many people have sat in my office and said, Pastor, I'm I'm not sure if I'm saved, and so I just lay in bed at night and I pray that prayer over and over and over again, and I just hope someday I'm going to say that prayer right, and it's finally going to... Listen, God is not waiting for your speech. You don't get to heaven because you got your speech right. And by the way, God is not waiting for that moment in which you make your speech. You're not accepted because you gave your speech. You're accepted because you're resting in what Christ has already done. If you think you're getting to heaven because you made a good speech, you think you're getting to heaven with something you did. God interrupts your speech and says, no, 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 I don't need your speech. You just rest in what I've already done for you. That's the gospel. I don't know what gospel you heard, but that's the gospel. There's an extravagant, lavish God who wants to, for all of eternity, pour out unending love and grace on you and for all of eternity celebrate you because he loves you that way. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.